0: Good afternoon and welcome to Soul City Church. How are you doing this afternoon? Oh my goodness, that's the best anyone's done all day. That's awesome. That's great to be with you. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church. So to all of you who are gathered here, to everyone who's actually listening online and to those who are in our overflow space, uh, we are so glad that you are here today. I believe God has you here for a, a purpose, for a reason that you're to here to experience him, to hear from him. And have your life changed and transformed by him. And uh, we are so excited to be heading into this Easter season. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series today called Via Crucis, the Way of the Cross. As we prepare our hearts for Easter, we don't want you to miss a minute of Easter. We don't want you to miss it this year. And we don't want anyone to miss the message of Easter this year, uh, which is why we make such a big deal about it. It's a big deal around our church. Easter's like our Super Bowl. Like We go nuts for Easter. And so that's why we're offering the seven different gatherings that we're offering and you know to go grab tickets. But I want to let you know that's not just like an exchange or reserving seats thing. That really is an act of faith. And I want you to be thinking about and praying about and making invitations to folks who need to hear about the love of God. People are more open to come to church at Easter than any other time of the year. And so my hunch is there's family members, there's uh, folks at your work, people that you know that would, they're just one invite away from experiencing what we get to experience here today. And so as you get your tickets, kind of maybe get some in faith, like get four tickets and say, Lord, who are the three going to be that I'm going to bring with me? Uh, we really believe that God's going to do incredible things over this season. And as we're looking today at Easter and kind of anticipating Easter and the great story of Easter, I wanted to kind of get a sense of what your story is, how you love stories. I think every one of us loves Stories. We love a good story, and I want you to be really honest for a second. I just want to kind of help you get in the framework around the story of Easter. I want you to think about how much you love stories and what you're willing to do for a good story. So here's the deal. What I want you to do. I want you to be really honest. At this point, you've. I mean, look at all that you've done to get here. You got up. You got dressed. You look great. And so why not? Let's just go all in and be honest with each other. Here's what I want you to do. In a second, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if this is true of you. Are you someone who has binge-watched a show at any point this year? Have you binge-watched? Raise your hand if you've binge-watched. Look around. You are a terrible group of people. I cannot believe in church. You know, so binge-watching shows, watching more than two in a row, and so maybe more hands would go up. Oh, yeah, I do. Oh, gosh. I thought you meant, Yeah. You know, all right. So now you get what I'm talking about. This now, listen, we love a good story, and so we will binge watch. This is a new thing. This is a new phenomenon, binge watching. Like when I was growing up, there was no binge watching. You watched the show when they put it on, and if you wanted to watch again, you recorded it to a tape so that you could watch it later. Now they just kind of released the whole thing. Netflix has changed and ruined our lives by <laughs> creating binge watching. And so they've studied kind of binge watching and, and, and why it's become such a phenomenon in our culture and what they found is that 70% of Americans admit to binge watching a show this last year. And by the show of hands, the number is way higher in church. I don't know what that means, but more than 70% of you just raised your hands. Here's what's really interesting: what they found that the average person, when they're binge watching, will watch on average between four to six hours of a show at a time. Oh, don't get judgment. Don't look how. You just got so self-righteous. Oh, how could they do that? That's the average. Four to six hours at a time. Maybe you've pulled a marathon like that before. And why is that? Why are we so addicted to binge watching a show? Why can't we just enjoy one episode as it is? We've got to keep on going. I don't think it's just because of accessibility and availability, although that is true. I think it's because there is something in us that we love and hate a good person you know, cliffhanger. Like we love that idea, but we also hate it. We can't leave it unresolved. So we have to finish it up. We can't just leave the characters hanging out there. We have to know what happens next. And so you go on to the next episode and you go on to the next episode because none of us likes unresolved stories. We like it to be wrapped up and it gives you a great sense of accomplishment. I just accomplished watching a whole show in two days. Like, you know, so... We don't like to leave things open-ended like that, right? That's why we binge watch, is because we hate and love cliffhangers. We want to see it resolved. And I think that goes way beyond our sort of viewing preferences. I think that actually speaks to something that's true of the human heart, of your heart, and of mine, is that we don't like unresolved chapters or seasons in our own story. We don't like to have parts that don't make sense, do we? We don't like to have parts that don't have answers, that don't get all wrapped up in a pretty little bow at the end of the season. We don't like that. We like to have things all wrapped up and make sense. And so it's logical if you were to be honest enough to admit that about yourself, it's logical that you would come to a place, if you're even remotely interested in God, that you have to ask this question. Does God have a plan for all the things in my life, all the things in my story that I don't understand? Does God have a plan for all the things that I don't understand, for all the parts of my story, the seasons of my life that don't all add up, that don't all make sense? Does he have a plan? Does he see? Does he know? More specifically, does he care for all the difficult and trying, the complicated, complex seasons of our life, for the painful, the heartbreaking chapters of our life. Does God see? Does he know? Does he care? Does he actually have a plan for those parts of our story? See, there's a word associated to that longing to know. And it's the word maybe if you grew up around church, you've heard. It's kind of a churchy word, I'll be honest with you. You probably don't use it in a sentence often. But the word is sovereignty. God's sovereignty. You ever heard that? God's sovereign. And we can understand kind of like what sovereign nations are and the right to rule. But when you think about God, that word sovereignty means that God is in control, that God actually has a plan. And if you ever heard that word before, it's easy to kind of go, oh, sure, I can believe that. I can believe that God is sovereign. I want to believe that God is actually sovereign. But settling sovereignty isn't something done in the head. It's actually something that's done in the heart. Because sovereignty, that belief that God is in control and God has a plan, ultimately has to do with trust, not belief, trust. Do I trust that God is both great and good? That he is in control of it all and he sees every aspect, every detail, every chapter, every season of my life. And so that's what I want us to get into today. Understanding that idea and really asking the question, Does God have a plan? Is God in control of all the parts of my life that seem out of control, that don't make sense, that are unresolved? Now, here's something I also know about you. I know that you are actually a Bible scholar, that you know more about the Bible than you think you do. And the Bible, as you know, is broken in basically into two parts, all right? So there's the Old Testament and the... See, you guys know the Bible. So it's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the Old Testament is the parts of the story before Jesus, and the New Testament is the parts of the story during the life of Jesus and after the life of Jesus. In fact, that division, that line at Jesus is so significant, and Jesus is so central in human history that we've even divided time by his birth, that there are things that happened before he came. We date those by calling those BC, which stands for, anyone want to guess? Before, see, you guys are Bible scholars, before Christ. And then there's A.D., which means anno domini, which is the year of or the time of our Lord, B.C. A.D. And it's easy to kind of look at the Bible and sort of divide it up the same way. There's sort of the pre-Jesus and the post-Jesus parts of the Bible. But what I want us to see today is that actually the, the thread of Jesus is woven throughout every page of this book and throughout every chapter of your story. And we're going to look through the Old Testament today to find Jesus in the Old Testament, the part that's supposed to be before Christ. We're going to look for him there, and we're going to look for him in the parts of your story where you maybe did not see him or experience him at the time. You know, there are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. These are words spoken by the people of God, prophets of God to the people of God about things to come. And of the prophecies of Jesus throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of them. I want you to just kind of get a number in your head. How many prophecies, specific prophecies about Jesus do you think there exists in the Old Testament? There's actually 400 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that speak to very real and specific events, and 100% of them he fulfilled, to the letter he fulfilled, every single one of them. Many of them were spoken hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus and he fulfilled every single one of them. See, he's woven all throughout this story, even throughout the Old Testament. And uh, uh, not too long ago, some friends of ours actually wanted to prove this point. And so they actually wrote a Bible. Now, that's, there's a life goal for you. Write a Bible. That's a pretty significant thing to say. They wrote a Bible called the Jesus Bible. And what they did is they go through every page, every chapter, every season of this story, and they show how it points to Jesus, that he's actually in and through it all, not just in the New Testament, but all throughout the Old Testament as well. So that when you think about BC, when you think about before Christ, it no longer actually means, after what we walk through today, it will no longer mean before Christ to you. But as you read the Old Testament, you will say, behold, Christ, behold, Christ is actually written through every." page of this book and through every chapter of my life. And so I want to show you what that looks like. We're going to follow the Via Crucis, the way of the cross throughout the Old Testament uh, today. And so I want you to grab a Bible, if you would, and we're going to open all the way to the left, to Genesis chapter 3. So grab a Bible if you, if you got one and you brought one, great. If you didn't, there should be a gray Bible in your seat back. Why don't you grab that right now? And I want to just say a word. We say this all the time. If you are interested in exploring who God is and you're kind of moved and stirred by our time together today but you don't own a bible can i just say it can you steal would you please steal a bible from church today please 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 steal a bible from church today it's one of the best things you're going to do you may not ever write a bible in your life but you can steal a bible from church and so you if you don't have one grab one swipe one take one with you turn to genesis chapter 3 it's on page 3 of the bible we're going all the way to left to look at where the via crucis really we first begin to Notice it. Let me give you context. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the whole earth, the heavens and the earth, everything we see and can know. God creates every living animal and he creates Adam and Eve. And he creates them and places them in a garden. And he says, this is all yours, all of it to enjoy. But he plants in the garden a tree. He says, except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from this tree. Everything else is yours. So the Via Crucis is wide at this point. There's only one tree in the middle. The reason God planted that there is so that they would actually have a choice because there is no real love without real choice. And so he says, I want to give you the choice whether or not you will love me. And if you know anything about the story, you know that they chose to eat from that tree. They were deceived by Satan in the form of a serpent. And then they ate from that tree and that separated them from God. Sin entered into the story and so this is right after that happened. God is handing out sentences of new realities now that sin has entered into the story. But look at the first couple of stones that get paved the Via Crucis in Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. Let's start there. It says, "So the Lord said to the serpent, again that's actually Satan, because you have done this, because you have tempted them, you've led them astray, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals." You will crawl on your belly. Pause. As a kid and I would read this, I'd go, wait a second, what was he doing before? What were snakes like before? Well, I don't know. Did Do they have hands? Maybe their hands had gloves. I had no idea what the snake did before, but now he has to crawl. Okay, that's just for me. But anyway, the point is he had to crawl on his belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Now, look at this. This is where it gets really interesting. Verse 15, and I will put enmity, that means division, separation, tension between you and the woman, referring to her offspring. He goes on to say, and between your offspring and hers. Now look at what God says in Genesis 3, in the very beginning of the story. He will what? He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now this is really interesting. What's this? Is this just metaphor? What's God talking about here? God's saying one day from this woman, there will come a son. And you, Satan, will try and, snatch victory by biting in his heel, by killing him. But what you don't realize is that that heel will actually crush your skull and he will defeat sin and death once and for all, securing victory for everyone. Now in Genesis 3, God's already given us our first spoiler alert to Easter. He's saying all the way back then, there is coming a time. There is now a road that will lead to the cross. And we see it actually weave its way all throughout the Old Testament. But I think it's important for us to notice that in the very beginning of the story, God's plan is in motion. When it was all chaos and it didn't make sense after sin entered in, God says, no, there is a path, there is a plan, there is a way. And I'm making my way through. You'll see. And I think it's important for you to think about your story, your own story, and all the unresolved chapters and all the you know, seasons of your life that don't all make sense to get that before you were ever even on the scene, God was working on your behalf so that you could have a relationship with him. Listen to me, we'll put it this way. Before you were anything, you were everything to God. Do you get that? Before you were anything, whatever it is that you think you are in this world, whatever it is that you have, whatever status you've achieved, before you were anything, any of that, before you were anything, you actually were everything to God. And he made a way, going all the way back to the beginning of your story as well, so that you could actually know him. God made a way for you long before he ever made you. And that's a powerful, settling thing to consider, that you are not on your own in this world trying to figure it out, that God has actually made a way for you. That's how much he loves you. Now, let's move ahead. We've got a lot of the Old Testament to get through in the next couple minutes. So, Psalm 22, turn to the right a little bit to Psalm 22, page 382 in the Gray Bible. Psalm 22. David, a great leader, first real, true, great king of Israel. After Saul had kind of lost his way, David took the throne, and he's a great king. But before that happens, he is in a really dark season. He's in a really dark place. Saul's trying to kill him. His friends have kind of abandoned him, all but one. Or, he doesn't even know where God's at or what God is up to. It's a dark and difficult chapter, an unresolved, if you will, chapter in his story. And in that moment, he pens out these prayers. The book of Psalms are a beautiful picture for us of prayer and praise as it's kind of captured by the hand of David and a few other folks who contribute to it. Now, I want you to listen to the language that David uses to pray and when he talks to God. Look at this, Psalm 22, verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. Pause right there. And just think about how boring your average prayer is compared to David's. I mean, he's, just using, he's using some language and this dogs surround. When's the last time you prayed and used the word villains in your prayer? Lord, villains surround me. They be thieving on me, Lord. Like, when's the last time you actually prayed like that? Say, David, he's like, God, this is how it feels. This is what it feels like. Dogs surround me. Villains are encircling me. Now look at the language he uses. They pierce my what? And my feet. Verse 17. All my bones are on display. Not literally, but this is how it felt to David. People stare and gloat over me. Verse 18. Now look at this. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, for anyone who's even remotely familiar with the Easter story... Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? The gospel writers make sure that we pay attention to the fact that the way they secured Jesus to the cross was nails through his hands and his feet. They pierced his hands and feet to hold him to the cross. It says that all of his followers, all but one and a few of the women, abandoned him. And the crowd that gathered that day gathered to mock him and hurl insults towards him as he heaved his last few breaths. And in fact, the gospel writers make sure that we pay attention to the fact that after Jesus died, the Roman soldiers who had been uh, given the mission of crucifying Jesus of Nazareth, they actually divided up his only earthly belongings. Think about that. The only thing he actually owned were his clothes. They divided up his clothes and they gambled to see who would get to keep a piece of them. Now, David had no idea when he was praying passionately metaphorically, that there would be one who would come who would experience exactly that, that that would be the experience of Jesus, that while David's suffering was real, albeit slightly metaphorical in this prayer, Jesus actually suffered this exact same way. And here we see it again in Psalm 22. God is just showing us that there is a way, there's a via crucis, a way of the cross that's weaving its way through all of human history, throughout all of the Old Testament. David had no idea that there would come one who would be familiar with suffering, that everything he had gone through, there would be one who went through it all and was familiar with suffering. And for any and all of us who've ever gone through a difficult or painful season, and you wonder where God's at, and does he even get it, get this. That is who Jesus is. He suffered. He was familiar with that kind of pain, that kind of rejection, that kind of abandonment. Whatever it is that you're going through, Jesus already went through it for you. He knows. And he can walk you through whatever it is you're facing. So what David didn't know is that this idea of a suffering Savior is something that God would continue to weave as he winds his way through the Old Testament getting all the way to the prophet Isaiah. So I want you to turn even more to the right, to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, it's page 511. I'm giving your fingers a workout today. I thought you might need it. So we're going to keep flipping through here. Isaiah 53, page 511. Isaiah was a prophet that spoke to the people of God about God and kind of revealed his heart for them. When Isaiah was a prophet, it was a very dark and difficult time in the chapter uh, for the story of the people of God. They had all but forgotten about God and assumed he had forgotten about them. But here's Isaiah speaking these promises about the presence of God into them in real time using future tense, present tense, past tense, a lot of his prophecies referring to or speaking to Jesus. In fact, in the book of Isaiah alone, there are 20 specific, unique prophecies about Jesus in the book of Isaiah alone. And this is one of them, and it connects to the thread that David saw. In Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 verse 4 says this, speaking of Jesus, surely he took up our pain and bore our what? Our suffering. suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. That anyone who would look at the cross would say, what has he done to deserve this kind of punishment? But the punishment wasn't actually Jesus' punishment. It was ours that he took upon himself. Verse 5, for he was, what's the word? He was pierced, there it is again, for our transgressions, our wrongdoing. He was cursed and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was actually on him. And now listen to this. Listen to this language. And by his what? By his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, all of our wounds find healing. This is the significance of a suffering Savior, one who trusted that God was sovereign all the way through. He experienced it all. And so Isaiah goes on to say this truth about us. If we were to be honest about ourselves, we all are like sheep. We go astray. We wander off the via crucis, the way of Jesus. All of us, like sheep, wander off the path. Each of us has turned to our own way. We're going to talk about that more next week. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. Of us all. Now, again, I don't know how much Isaiah got what he was throwing down here, that he was actually speaking about the Savior that was to come and that Jesus actually would be a suffering Savior, but it's important to note the context. Again, this is 700 years before Jesus in a very dark and difficult chapter for the people of God, they had assumed God had moved on from them and in many ways they had moved on from God. And yet what God is doing here is weaving the power and the presence of the promise of the one who was to come. That even though times are, are dark and difficult, that there's still a way that leads to life. And I think many of us have had our own seasons where we have assumed God has forgotten about you. You wonder if God's actually, if he sees you, if he knows what you're going through. My hunch is I mean, I just statistically, I know there are folks in this room right now. And because I know a bunch of you, I know there's folks in this room right now. And you're in a season where you're wondering, does God even see me? Does God even care about what I'm suffering through, what I'm going through? And if that's you, or if you're familiar with that, I want to encourage you to take heart. If God can weave together thousands and thousands of years, generation after generation, all sorts of our own wandering, God can weave a path that leads to the cross. He certainly can do the same in your story as well. He has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. It may not be like you would have wanted or would have chosen, but that doesn't mean that God is not present. And that there's not a way that leads to life, even in this difficult season. All right, one last stop. Zechariah 12. Might as well end on a Z. Zechariah 12, page 667. We can go there and see some of these same themes woven again all the way throughout the Old Testament. Zechariah 12, page 667. Prophet Zechariah is painting a picture here about God's own son, God's only son. And what he would suffer for us on our behalf. And look at the language used here in Zechariah 12, verse 10. It says, now I love this. Again, past tense, present tense, future tense, all at the same time. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That means the people of God. It's another way of saying the people of God. A spirit of grace. Again, this is the Old Testament. God's already talking about grace. Of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have what? The one they have? pierced. there it is again, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. Now what Zechariah could not have known is that there would one day come the words written by John the Beloved, disciple of Jesus, words that people would know world you know, all over the world, little wide. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his what? only son, his only son. This is how God made a way for us. He gives his only son, as Zechariah is referencing here. In fact, the Bible refers to Jesus as the firstborn over all creation, that he's the firstborn and only son of God, and that this was the via crucis, the way, is that God would offer him up And people would gather around the cross to grieve and to mourn. And can you imagine if you were a follower of Jesus, just about all the disciples but one, John, abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need. So it was just John and a few of the women that followed him there at the cross. Can you imagine how that would feel for you in that moment? The one you had hung your hope on, the one that you had found life in is now dead on a cross. Would you not grieve? Would you not mourn? But what they couldn't see, what even Zechariah couldn't see hundreds and hundreds of years before, is that that sorrow would be turned to joy because it would be that death that would actually lead to life. See, this is the via crucis. This is the way of Jesus. That over the course of thousands and thousands of years and countless ups and downs and hills and valleys and generation after generation, story after story, God was weaving glory All along the way, God was making a way that led to and even through the cross. He never forgot. There was never a time that God didn't see that God wasn't working out his greater plan for the world and his greater plan for you and for me. And I believe that same path, that same way of Jesus is actually ultimately what led you here today that there is something in you that recognizes that there is a God and that he actually loves you and he's leading you into life with him through his son, Jesus. I think that's why you're here today at some level. I think that's evidence of the Via Crucis in your own life. It weaves through your life as well. I bet you if you were to stop and be really honest, you could look back over your life and find moments where you say, I don't understand how, I don't know why, but God carried me through. It didn't make sense at the time. I didn't have the answers I wanted, but I look back now and see it was God's loving hand guiding me. I bet you could find find some examples of that. It's one of the main reasons why we worship here is because we see the evidence of God's faithfulness in our life, his sovereignty on display in our lives. Now, I want to be really honest with you about the way of Jesus. And I always hate any time in a sermon when I say I want to be really honest with you because that makes it sound like I haven't been honest with you so far. I've been totally honest with you all the way. I'm going to be even more honest with you. I'm going to double down on honesty right now. Here's what I've learned and what I've come to experience what I know about the way of Jesus is that it doesn't always make sense. It can be complicated. It can be frustrating. Listen to me, the way of Jesus rarely runs parallel to your life as it exists right now. It winds and weaves its way through. It takes you oftentimes places you weren't planning to go. You can't always recognize it in the moment, but it is actually always there. But it's complicated. And I think about it when I meet, from folks, I meet with folks from our church and I, I love this church. I love you so much. And Jeannie and I consider it, one of the greatest privileges of our life to pastor this church. But I'm telling you, when I'm sitting with folks, like I was this last week, and they're talking about the loss of a son as their son died about just under 40 years ago and how they're still, these are godly people, love God, serve God most of their life, still trying to figure out how it all makes sense. Why would God, how, how does that fit into God's plan that that would happen? And I'm sitting there and I'm wondering too, yeah, where is the way of Jesus in this? I don't know. Where's the way of Jesus in this? As I sit with folks who are in the midst of a really difficult, challenging marriage, and they look at their marriage, they look at their spouse, they say, "This is not what I this is not what I signed up for." And they're wondering where God is leading them in the midst of this marriage. And I sit with them and I listen and I go, "Okay, God, where are you at? Where's the way of Jesus through this difficult, challenging marriage?" Or maybe you walked through a divorce or your parents walked through a divorce and you wonder, does God have a plan for that? Does all of that fit in? Because I don't have answers for how all of that happened or why all of that happened. Or as I sit with people I recently did, someone who lost a job, just completely unexpectedly lost a job and is wondering, how am I going to be able to pay the bills? How am I going to be able to actually kind of make it all work? Does God have a plan for this season right now of my life? Because it doesn't feel like or seem like he does. And as we sit together, I wonder, where is the way of Jesus leading? Where are you at in the midst of this, Jesus? It can be complicated. It can be frustrating. And sometimes it can be difficult to find. And I think about my own life. I can tell you, there are plenty of times where I have not had the answers that I wanted from God. I didn't get to wrap it all up in a pretty little bow. There have been times in my life where I stood on a stage telling people about how much God loves them and how good God is. And then I would walk off and wonder if it's actually true for me. Because the things going on in my life, okay, God, does that mean, is that true for me too? Because it doesn't all make sense. And that's why the whole idea of sovereignty really is not a head thing, it's a heart thing. It's not just a belief thing, it's a trust thing of being willing to say it doesn't all make sense, but I believe, God, you're making a way for me even when it doesn't make sense. That you are good, that you are faithful. And if I ever wonder, I have thousands and thousands of years of evidence of your sovereignty, of your goodness, of your faithfulness to me. Listen, God may not give you the answers that you want. He may not give me all the answers I want. And I would love to have him. Believe me, I've got a few questions for him when we get to heaven. God may not give you all the answers you want, but He will always give you a way. He always gives you a way. May not give you the answers, may not all be wrapped up, may not all be resolved in this season like you want it to, but He always, always, always provides a way for you and me. It's the Via Crucis, it's the way that leads to and through the cross. And it is there if you're willing to look for it and if you're willing to trust Him. He will, He will carry you through. He already has. You just may not recognize it as such. And so as I was thinking about how we take this truth, I I love the idea that we get to look at the Old Testament and say, behold Christ. I actually want you to be able to say that about your life. To look at it and say, it's not all perfect. It's not all figured out. I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of seasons and chapters that seem like they are unanswered or unfinished. But I want you to look and behold Christ throughout my whole story. So as I thought about the homework we could have this week, I love that we have homework. Well, I love giving it. I don't know if you love doing it, but I love giving homework every week. I thought it'd be fun for us to to really get honest with the places where we need to choose to trust, to surrender to God's sovereignty. And so what I want you to do is I want you, there should be a pen in your seat back. I want you to grab a pen. I want everyone, if you would please, just to grab a pen if you don't already have some. We're gonna do a little body graffiti here. Because I think there's a word that you and I need to be reminded of. I need to be reminded of every day. And that word is trust. And as David in Psalm 22 referenced where they pierced Jesus' hands, and as we're going to see and celebrate the cross and the resurrection in just a few weeks, I thought it might be important on our hands to write the word trust. And so if you would right now, would you write the word trust on your hand? And you can underline it as many times as you want write the word trust. And I want you to think about all the places where God's inviting you to trust him, all the unresolved parts of your story, all the places where you don't have all the answers. Where's God inviting you to trust him, that there is a way that he will carry you through, that he sees, that he knows, that he is in control, that he has a plan for all the parts that you and I don't understand. And until I get the trust piece right this week, I'm gonna keep writing it on my hand. Until I get trust all figured out, which may take me all week, if not the rest of my life, I wanna keep writing it down so that every time I look at my hand, I'm reminded that I can actually trust God that he is in control, that he is good, that he is great, that he is sovereign. Our struggle with sovereignty is not anything new, in fact, this is what Jesus faced just moments before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is there. All his followers have fallen asleep and he is begging God and he's crying out to God. Is there any other way other than the cross? Any other way other than the Via Crucis?" And yet in that moment, he chooses to trust God for the parts that didn't make sense, the parts that would be difficult, challenging for him that God was in control and God knew exactly what he was doing. And so he submitted, he surrendered himself to sovereignty. And that's what I'd love to see us do this week, to surrender ourselves to the sovereignty of God, the goodness of greatness of God on display throughout history and on display throughout your story. And so I want to move into a time of of worship and response to God as we consider that reality of how good and how faithful God is. And even though it may be difficult, God is actually present and wants to carry you through. And as part of our worship, what we're going to do is we're actually going to give to God as part of our worship. And we love giving to God. In fact, the last couple of weeks, we uh, had a teaching series about this, how God has invited you to master your money so that you can actually be free and actually live a more generous life. In fact, last week I, when I taught here, we had some kind of technical issue in the booth, and the message didn't record. And I thought, well, you know what? It was such a good message. Uh, That's not fair. And so I actually got on the stage with no one else in the room this week and recorded the whole sermon word for word just so that you could have it. It was one of the most awkward things I've done, but I did it because I love you and because I want you to have it because we think this is important, that giving is one of the last places where we actually choose to trust God, where we really surrender our stuff and say, okay, I trust that you have a plan even for this stuff. And so I want to invest it into things eternal. I want to get an exponential return on my investment. That's why we give here and we do it with joy. And that's why we have so many of the smartest folks I know do it online here at Soul City Church. And you can go online today to soulcitychurch.com slash give and actually set up online giving. But we pass the buckets as a physical, tangible reminder to us that we get to surrender. We get to surrender, surrender to God's sovereignty in real time. So That's what we're going to do in a moment. Before we do, I'd love to pray for us. So If you would take a posture of prayer that we take around here, we open up our hands. and Maybe with hands open, you just need to look down on that word trust that you've written on your hand. Think about all the places in your life right now where it's difficult to trust God, parts of your story where it's difficult to trust God. I wonder if you would just join me in a spirit of prayer right now. God, we, we thank you that you have not held back. You never once held back anything from us. And that, God, from the very beginning of history and the very beginning of our story, you've been weaving your glory. You've been weaving the via crucis, the way that leads to the cross. And Jesus, we thank you that you surrendered to God's sovereignty, that you trusted that his plan was best and was good, and you made yourself available to be the sacrifice for us. And so, God, we want to offer all we are to you. And, God, I know there are a ton of folks in this room right now that may be in really difficult, really dark, really challenging parts of their story and there aren't a lot of answers and they're wondering where you're at, God, I pray today would be a reminder and encouragement that they would be able to take heart that the same God who wove his power and presence and promise all throughout the Old Testament has actually been weaving that same power and presence and promise through their life and that you will carry them through, God. That's who you are. And so I pray you would lighten their heart, God, even in the midst of a confusing and complex or challenging season. And God, I pray for our church as we give to you, God, that you would do increasingly more than we could ever do with this money that you would give us an exponential, eternal return on our investment, God, and that we'd be able to see that all of it ultimately is yours anyway. You're the one who puts breath in our lungs, God. You're the one who gives us the energy to face the day. You're the one who sustains us throughout the day. You're the one who's made a way for us, God. And so we choose to surrender all and to trust you and to declare how good and how great you are in this moment. It's because of who you are that we give and we sing. Amen.